Let me read, um, let me read Romans chapter 1, and then, uh, and then we'll pray. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 is what we will consider this morning. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. This is Paul. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning. Be with me as I try to explain words that are not my own, but come from you. We pray that I would be clear, and we pray for my heart and the hearts of everyone here, that though it is me speaking, that they would hear this as the word of their good shepherd. We ask that we would really internalize these words, that we would take them as what you've given them to us as, that we would obey them, that we would seek to honor them, that we would encourage each other and challenge each other with them. In the blood of your perfect son, we pray. Amen. Well, I think as all of you now know, this will be mine and my family's last Sunday as members of Park City Gospel Church. We've been here for six years, and I've served as an elder for the last four of those years. And I was asked if I wanted to preach my last Sunday. And I've been blessed over the years uh, to be able to bring the word to you several times, and so I was delighted to be asked to do it one more time. Um, In deciding what text I wanted to bring, I struggled to think of one. What is somebody to say to a healthy church as he leaves? There are many things a departing elder may wish to say, but time becomes his enemy rather quickly. And, And so I thought it therefore best to offer you something that I think encapsulates our time here. It was why this church has been such a blessing to me and my family and offer my confident assurance that that faithfulness to the gospel will continue. Nothing would make me happier than to meet a man in five years who I don't know, who's a member here, and hear that this church has stayed focused on the gospel and that this church has been a blessing to that future young man as it has been to me and my family. However, that can only happen, as you well know, is if this church stays focused on what has it always been focused on, and that is the gospel of Christ. If this church, if any church, loses sight of the gospel, then it will not be a blessing to anyone. And so with that in mind, I want to bring you a message that sums up everything this church has been for the past six years. Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. This is Paul's magnum opus. The book of Romans is Paul's most important letter. One author says that had Paul only have written the book of Romans, we would still consider him the preeminent author of the New Testament books. And these verses, these two verses might be the most important verses, the most important two sentences in what might be the most important book of the New Testament. And these two verses give Paul his thesis. This is the main point of the book of Romans. It explains why Paul is writing. 
But beyond that, it explains why Paul did what he did in his life. The reason he endured hardship, 40 lashes minus one, imprisonment, mockery from the world, mockery from professing believers. The reason he endured all of that is because he was not ashamed of the gospel. His driving principle was the gospel of Christ and nothing else. This was the man who was awakened to God's glory by meeting Christ on the road to Damascus. And he was forever changed. And when the scales fell off his physical eyes, the blindness of his heart was also lifted. And so from that moment, from the moment that he met the living Christ, Paul lived for the gospel. Paul lived for nothing else. Paul did not live for Paul. Paul lived for Christ. And so too must all of us. So Paul has just told the Romans that he longs to come to them. He longs to visit with them and gather with them. Specifically, he has told them that his desire was to come to Rome and preach the gospel. Look at verse 15. As a side note, look at verse 8 of chapter 1. He says, he is desiring to see them because he has heard of their faith in Christ. He is writing to believers and his desire is to preach the gospel to them. Do not think that the gospel is the first message you hear. It's the first message you need to hear. And then once you've got it, you can move on to bigger and better. There is nothing bigger and better. Sure, your understanding would, we would hope, grow more complex. And your your understanding of doctrines would become more robust. and, And your application of them would become more consistent. And we should pray that our knowledge of the Bible increases in a, in a multifaceted way, but the gospel is not a stepping stone. The gospel is the foundation and the heart and the hub of all that a Christian is taught. And so Paul desires to preach the gospel because as he says, he is not ashamed of it. That is his reason for his zeal, to see them, to preach to them, to give this message to them. The sad reality is is that Paul actually has to say that he's not ashamed of the gospel. And he has to say that because he knows that even Christians in his day, like ours, would feel tempted to feel ashamed of the gospel. There's a plethora of reasons that the Bible, church history, and, and modern experience give us to tempt us to feel shame in the gospel. But it's important to note that shame, as as Paul speaks of it, is not outward hostility. Notice he does not say, I do not hate the gospel. He does not say, I do not outwardly attack or I do not publicly denounce the gospel. He says, I do not feel ashamed regarding the gospel. Shame is subtle. Shame disguises itself as nuance. The the human heart lends itself to feel shame at the gospel. And it is therefore a problem that we must look at and examine. And so let me suggest a few subtle ways that we might feel tempted to shame in the gospel. Ways that can manifest in my heart and yours. The first is a shame in the gospel due to philosophy. The, The gospel 
Biblical truth does not pass as intellectually rigorous. It is simple, uninformed, outdated. It dwells on an old pagan superstition of blood guilt and blood sacrifice. And so what we need is a more modern, polished, more scholarly, viable gospel. And so the church tries to blend this gospel with the nuances of modern philosophy, modern cosmology. And the result is that the true gospel dies the death of a thousand qualifications and endless definitions. Paul, you'll remember, deals with this exact thing in his letter to the Corinthians. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? He is essentially asking, where is the philosopher? And so he reminds the Corinthians that they were called according to God, not according to worldly standards of wisdom. And he sums up everything by saying, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. And the gospel is not a wisdom according to our age either. A second common way we might feel tempted to actually shame in the gospel is due to not philosophy, but psychology. We we do not believe the gospel can really be the problem or the solution to our problems because our problems are too complex. Our problems are therapeutic, not theological. And so if you have real problems in life, real serious problems in life, you cannot go to the Bible, you cannot go to scripture, you cannot go to your pastor You cannot go to a theologian, except perhaps as only a starting gate to a more informed therapeutic. The the real problem is not sin, it is not behavior, it is chemical. And so really, for your complex situation, what you need is drugs and and medication. It, It really, it's due to your upbringing. And so you need a therapist, not a theologian. It, It most certainly is sin, at least partly, but not totally. And so the gospel really isn't sufficient to help with our 21st century understanding of our negative situations. This is actually to be ashamed of the gospel. It is to betray the scripture's teaching that it is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. One Christian writer even claimed that people who think that the Bible and the gospel are sufficient for the Christian life, an obedient life unto God, were guilty of a, quote, non-thinking and simplistic understanding of life and its problems. He says that actually non-Christians are more helpful than Christians because of their robust, robust understanding of secular psychology, which is almost entirely built on the premises of Sigmund Freud, unquote. Dear friends, that writer has a shame in the gospel. Another reason we might feel shame in the gospel is because of legalism. The gospel kills our pride. The gospel offers us nothing that we can do to merit our salvation. And so consequently, sinful man has always had this nearly insatiable need to add something that we can do. Some work, some deed, some action, some something that we can do. And dear Christian, whenever you add anything to the gospel, you are shaming in the true gospel because you are implicitly saying that it's not enough on its own. It needs you. It needs your help. It needs your wisdom. This was the issue with the Judaizers. You couldn't just believe the gospel. You had to believe and be something else. 
a Jew or an Israelite, or you had to believe the gospel and do something else, namely keep the law of Moses. And if the gospel is not sufficient on its own and something needs to be added, then subtly you are expressing the very shame that Paul speaks about here. We could also feel shame towards the gospel because it isn't entertaining enough. This was hugely popular in the 80s and and 90s and still is today. If we just preach the gospel, our services will be boring, uneventful, and the Spirit will never be able to work in such stifling conditions. If all we are to do is preach His all-sufficient Word, then no one will come. No, what we need is a comedy act or, or an inviting safe space with a rock concert. Again, if preaching the gospel is not enough on its own, then you shame in the gospel. Finally, we can shame in the gospel simply because of embarrassment. There is nothing more reprehensible to some in the church today than a Christian who actually believes the Christian gospel. And so they'll say, yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those Christians. I am fine with homosexuality, or at least I want to talk more about loving everybody rather than defining that love biblically. I do believe in the gospel, but I will happily downplay my complementarian or pro-life convictions so that you think I'm nice and winsome. If you feel the need to apologize for everything the Bible says and everything the gospel demands, then you are ashamed of the gospel. Now, you might be thinking some of those things describe you. Some of those things describe me. Perhaps they are things you've been taught. Perhaps they've been struggles you've had. And you know better, but you find yourself thinking some of those things or things very similar. That's a good thing. Paul knows that. That's why he's writing that he's not ashamed of the gospel. Remember, he's writing to Christians. He is writing to Christians, Christians being sanctified, not Christians already glorified. He knows there is still a battle with the flesh. He will explain it in chapter 7 of Romans. He knows that even Christians, even true, genuine, blood-bought Christians will be tempted and pulled by the world to think less of the gospel than the scriptures do. One commentator even supposed that perhaps Paul himself at times struggled with this feeling. And that is precisely why he is saying what he is saying. He is writing to encourage the Roman church to challenge them. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Your human heart, your human flesh, the sinful world will tell you that you need to feel shame in the gospel. And Paul's saying, I don't. And the obvious implication is you shouldn't either. And so if some of those things describe you, then Paul has a word, don't feel shame in the gospel. It is nuanced, it is subtle, it is easy. But Paul says, don't be ashamed of the gospel. And in so doing, he offers four words, four words that describe what the gospel is and therefore why we must not be ashamed of it. It is my prayer this morning that we hear these four descriptions of the true gospel of glory. The only real reason this church has been such a blessing to me and my family is because they have gloried in this gospel. 
because you have understood and understand these four truths. They define the preaching here. They form the ministries. They guide the counsel that we have received here. Paul says, don't shame in the gospel. Dear church, you haven't. Paul says, don't shame in the gospel because it is power, salvation, righteousness, and faith. If you understand those four terms, you understand the gospel. Power, salvation, righteousness, and faith. Let's look first at how Paul describes the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Notice the very power of God is bound up in the gospel. When we consider scripture, we see many displays of God's power. I mean, the whole history of Scripture, the whole story, begins with God creating all matter, all energy out of nothing by the sheer influence of his will. Psalm 62, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Jesus himself said, nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And no doubt you can think of countless displays of God's power in Scripture. The book of Exodus shows God decimating Egypt and then splitting the Red Sea. Elijah calls down fire from heaven. The psalmist, Psalm 106, says, Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord, or who can show forth all his praise? Displays that care for and provide for his people. Elsewhere in Scripture, we see God's power in judgment. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you, Psalm 66. Power was obviously on display when Christ was walking on the water. He calms the wind and the sea. Even his virgin birth was by the power of the Holy Spirit. In his life, he gives power to his disciples. In Revelation 11, power is given by God to the two witnesses. It is little wonder that the Bible over and over again says that God's power is such that he does whatever he pleases. Luke says, nothing is impossible with God. And Jeremiah says, ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And yet for as impressive as raising Lazarus is, For as miraculous as splitting the Red Sea is, for as unbelievable as it is to consider that God simply speaks matter into existence, the Bible does not suggest that these things are the pinnacle of God's power. It is true that Christ casts out demons, had supernatural knowledge, and was born of a virgin. It is true he gave blind eyes sight and caused lame legs to jump. Yet this is not the apex of God's power. Scripture tells us that the true sign of God's power, the Mount Everest of God's power on display, is his will in the salvation of sinners. In other words, the gospel is a greater display of God's power than forming the heavens and telling the stars where to go. When Christ explained how difficult it would be for a rich man to be saved, the disciples asked, then who can be saved? They got it. 
They understood what Jesus was saying. No one can be saved except God grants them life. That's why Christ answered, with men, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And that's why Paul said to the Corinthians that the gospel is the power of God to those who are being saved. You need to know that you are witness to and evidence of the power of God. If you are here this morning and you are in love with the precious Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, then you are a display of God's power. It is easier to walk on water and split the Red Sea than it is to cleanse your heart from sin. It is easier to speak five universes into existence than to take my rotting, wretched, vile, sinful corpse of a life and turn me into a saint and a son. And if a son, then an heir. The preeminent display of God's power in all the cosmos is in the fact that you and I were once haters of God and we have now come to share in the eternal glories due only to the Son of the Most High. Don't ask for a sign of God's power. Dear Christian, you are the sign of God's power. And so the gospel is the very power of God for those who are being saved or for theological students, for the elect. It is the very power of God. The second gospel word that Paul gives us is salvation. The gospel is power. The gospel gospel is not a blind power. It, It is not a raw, undirected, uncontrollable power. It is power with a purpose, a destination, a goal. The gospel is the effective operation of God's power leading to salvation. Salvation in in its usage here is a rather broad concept. It, It essentially means deliverance or soundness, wholeness. John writes in Revelation 12, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Notice that salvation is directly connected to the power. We've talked about that. The kingdom of God coming to earth and the authority of the Messiah or Christ. And so with this broad concept in view, let me suggest a few things that will help us understand the power of the gospel unto salvation. The the, the gospel leading to salvation really involves two things. The, The first is redemption. It involves the redemption of sinners. This includes our justification, our being declared innocent before God. It includes our sanctification, our gradual growth in godliness as we are conformed to the image of Christ. And sanctification is an essential component of the gospel. You cannot have a gospel that does not conform your desires and behavior to what God would have of his people. Redemption also includes our glorification. That is our final and perfect conforming into the likeness of Christ. That is to say that the salvation that began with your regeneration and you're being justified, you're being declared righteous, you being born again, ends with you actually being perfectly just and righteous. In, in 1 John we read, we are God's children now. 
That is sanctification as a result of the new birth. And what we will be has not yet appeared. That is glorification. It is still to come, but the gospel still has that in view. 1 John 3, 2. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And so when we say that the gospel is our salvation, we mean it is our redemption, all facets of it, all aspects of it. But the second aspect of salvation or the power of the gospel is not just in redemption, but also restoration. That this extends beyond the elect's redemption and includes a cosmic global overhaul into the perfect eternal kingdom of Christ. It speaks of the fact that God will restore everything that was touched, tainted, and affected by sin. As one commentator says, the salvation Paul spoke of is more than forgiveness of sin. It includes the full scope of deliverance from the results of Adam's sin. Now, now, dear Christian, when Adam sinned, there was certainly internal effects, wasn't there? There was internal results. And those are corrected and redeemed. But there were also effects outside of Adam himself. Plants and animals became dangerous. Blood being shed became normal in nature. And the actions of earth, the earth, earthquakes, floods were now dangerous for man. The perfect Garden of Eden was destroyed. And Paul says that creation groans. The story of the gospel is not just an escape hatch. It's actually a story of redemption and restoration. One of my favorite commentators, Doug Moo, writes this. That Paul's tone here is eschatological and emphasizes the blessings of the last day. And these blessings are, are negative. We are saved from wrath, but they are also positive. We are saved to an, inher- uh, an eternal inheritance. Mu says, quote, salvation here must include the restoration of the sinner to share of the glory of God. Now look at our text with me. Paul gives two specific truths regarding the salvation that he is speaking about. So we have the power of God unto salvation. Notice what he says about salvation. First, salvation is by faith. Notice what the text says. The gospel is the power of God to everyone who believes. Now that the relationship between salvation, righteousness, and faith, we're going to look at in a moment. But, But here we need to note that the gospel being the power of God is for those who believe. It is for those who have faith. What we mean is this. If you do not have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you do not believe that he was the son of God who lived a perfect law-keeping life on your behalf and who took upon your sin on his shoulders and suffered under the curse of that sin on your behalf, If you do not believe that he rose again on the third day, defeating death for you and ascending to the right hand of the Father, then this salvation is not yours. This power unto salvation is not unto your salvation. If you are not attached to Jesus Christ by faith, then this gospel is not your salvation. In in fact, the power of God and his perfect justice and holiness will actually be your damnation. 
power unto salvation is by faith. It is for those who believe. And this means the most important question you can ask yourself is, do you believe? Do you believe in Christ? Do you believe that you are a sinner? And do you believe that you stand condemned before God? Do you believe that he offers his life as a payment for sin? And do you, bringing nothing of your own, rest only in the merits of the suffering Savior? Because if you do believe, if you do have faith, then the gospel is the power of God in salvation. And that would be your salvation. And in this way, salvation is limited. It is limited to those who appropriate it by faith. But in another sense, salvation is universal. And it is to that we now turn. Look at what Paul says. Salvation is universal in two ways. First of all, it is to all who believe. That is to say, if you believe, you cannot not be saved. If you believe, you will most certainly be saved. It is the salvation of all who believe. Secondly, it is universally available to all men, and we might add women as well. This is what Paul means when he says it is to the Jew first and then to the Greek. That that is an ancient way of saying that it is for everybody. The Greek was just a euphemism for Gentile, which is simply anyone who isn't a Jew. And so you have two categories here. You have a Jew and you have somebody who's not a Jew. You have an Israelite and somebody who's not an Israelite. And that, of course, covers everybody. This means that the salvation that is available by faith is available to everyone. The gospel extends from Jerusalem, but it goes to the corners of the earth. And and so you cannot say, well, I don't have the right upbringing. I was not born in the right family. I did not have the right culture or the right parents to be saved. Dear Christian, there is no right background parents or culture. Salvation is a matter of faith. The only ability you have to put yourself outside the salvation offered in the gospel is simply to not believe it. And so the gospel call extends to all men. Salvation is available by faith to all men, regardless of their background, their upbringing, their past, their blood, or their parents. This is why Peter declared that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord would be saved. The gospel through faith is hope for the most wicked, vile, disenfranchised. It is also the only hope for the most well-off, honored, and respectable member of society. The third word that looms large in this text and, and fundamentally explains the gospel is righteousness. So we have power, salvation, and now righteousness. This furnishes us with another reason not to shame in the gospel. It also shows us another another reason that the gospel is the display of God. It is a display of God's power. But it is also a display of God's righteousness. The righteousness of God. It's actually been a very controversial phrase. um, And there's about 90 
90 some odd suggestions for exactly what it means. Um, and, and if you look at church history, there's been an enormous amount written on this phrase, the righteousness of God. And some have suggested that uh, righteousness is an attribute that God possesses. It is the righteousness that belongs to God. And that's what Paul's speaking of. Others say that it is a righteousness from God. That is to say, it is a status given by God. Still a third camp says the righteousness of God is not an attribute or a status, but it is the activity of God. That is to say that God's covenantal saving action in the gospel is the revelation of God. Well, what is important for our purposes here this morning is that all those are true and they're not mutually exclusive. That is to say that God's righteous, God is righteous, and the gospel certainly shows that. It shows that in how God's righteousness condemns the sinner. And God does get then engage in a justifying activity, saving through faith, where he declares sinners to be righteous. And of course, that results in us being righteous. Sanctification and then glorification. Very simply, the idea of righteousness, it just means being right, being straight. It, it means to be in accordance with a law or a custom. And, and so it's very clear to us that we are not righteous in and of ourselves. It is also clear to us that God is. And, and the gospel is the revelation of how someone who is not righteous can be declared righteous. But more than that, actually become righteous. Because for all those who have faith, we will live in eternity in a perfect state of righteousness. And we will never violate any of the Lord's commands. Not in our thoughts, not in our deeds. And to explain how this is possible, Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. The, the idea that sinners are saved by grace through faith is not a new doctrine. That did not come from Martin Luther or John Calvin in the Reformation. It was not original to Augustine. It is not even a new revelation of Paul in the New Testament. It is as old as the fall itself. And it is taught by the prophets in the Old Testament. Let me make a few points regarding this righteousness. First, the righteousness of God is the righteousness of Christ. We know this. Because Paul introduces this gospel earlier uh, in Romans. In verse 1 of chapter 1, we see, notice he says, the gospel of God. But then in verse 3, he says, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. That's an obvious reference to Jesus Christ our Lord, Romans 1.5. Now go ahead, chapter 3 of Romans, and Paul uses this phrase again. Look at verse 21. It, it reads, the righteousness of God same phrase, has been manifested. And then again, he says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Romans 3, 21 and 22. So what Paul is talking about here is the righteousness of Christ. And Christ is the righteous one, both in his essential nature and in his perfect law-keeping on behalf of his sheep. Second, notice with me, the righteousness of God is offered apart from any works. This is really the heart of the gospel. Because the existence of a perfect righteousness is actually terrible news for sinners. 
a perfect and right, a perfect and just righteous God is horrible news for people like you and me. What makes it good news? What makes it glorious news? What makes it the most wonderful, life-changing news is the fact that God is willing and actually does give this perfect righteousness. That is what Luther came to realize. He knew God was perfectly righteous. And he knew he wanted and needed that righteousness. But the more he tried to earn it, the more he tried to please God, the further away from it he realized he really was. And actually, if you study Luther, this caused him to become very angry. And by his own admission, have a secret hatred of God in his heart. Because he recognized that the standard God required was an impossible standard. And that under God's perfect righteousness, all sinners, no matter how pious, would be justly condemned. One of my favorite theologians, James Boyce, explains, however, what Luther recognized and how it launched the Reformation. This is what he says, quote, But then Luther discovered that he had misunderstood God's intention in revealing the nature and existence of this righteousness. It was not revealed so that men and women like Luther might strive toward it and inevitably fail desperately as Luther did. It was revealed as God's free gift in Christ so that those who came to know Christ might stop their fruitless striving and instead rest in him. They could rest in his atoning death on their behalf since he took the punishment of their sins upon himself and paid for them fully so that their sins might never rise up to haunt them again. They could rest in righteousness knowing that God had given it to them and that they could thereafter stand before God, not in their own self-righteousness, which is no righteousness at all, but in the very righteousness of Christ, unquote. That's the gospel. That's the power of God unto salvation. It is God is righteous and you're not. And he offers that righteousness through faith in Christ. Just in closing, a final term that exemplifies the gospel. We have power, we have salvation, we have righteousness, we finally have faith. We've already introduced this topic. We've seen that faith is the means by which we receive the righteousness of Christ. We have seen further that this salvation, which we have been speaking about, is available only and exclusively to those who have faith. We also saw that it is for all of those who have faith, whether Jew or Greek. Here, here then, I only want to point out one thing. Faith is not simply an event that happens at the beginning of your Christian life. That is true. It is that. And that is a primary characteristic of it. But it is something that continues in your Christian life. This is what is meant by Paul's use of the phrase, from faith to faith. From the faith that marked your regeneration and justification. And then in turn, leads to a lifestyle of faith in the promises of God. This explains why he applies Habakkuk in the way he does. He is showing that the lifestyle of the righteous is a lifestyle of continuing, ongoing faith. Dear Christian, faith is not a one-time thing. It is an all-the-time thing. 
Do you remember all of those reasons why we might be subtly and nuanced and subtly tempted to feel shame in the gospel? This is why we must never shame in the gospel. Because faith is not simply something we did. Where we say, I I prayed the prayer, I walked the aisle, I checked the check. I'm good, I did that faith thing. Dear Christian, you are doing that faith thing. And by God's grace and the Spirit's power, you will continue to do that faith thing. This really is the crux of the issue. And I open this message by suggesting that this church has been focused on the gospel of grace by faith alone. That is true. But the reason this church has been such a blessing to me and my family, and the reason this church will continue to be such a blessing to the next family, is not only because it has good sound doctrine, but because that focus on the gospel leads to a people who operate on the basis of belief. Belief, faith in God himself, in his promises, in his word. People have said that church is a small taste of heaven on earth. That is true. Because it is a group of people who were saved by faith. And who live with an unwavering dependence on and trust in God. Church, put simply, you are a people who by the power of God have come to salvation. You are a people who are living from faith and to faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for his forthrightness. We thank you that we ought never to shame in the gospel. And we know, Lord, that we can be tempted to. We, we feel that temptation within us. We feel that temptation from the world to, to add something to the gospel. Or or to see that the gospel is not intellectually viable in the world's opinion. Or to be fooled into thinking that we need some psychology, something other than the gospel. Or to be deceived into thinking that the gospel is not sufficiently entertaining and glorious for the saints. We thank you for these four words that describe the gospel. We know, Lord, we could spend a lifetime studying each one of them. And yet what Paul has given us in these brief two verses is enough to challenge us comfort us, and exhort us. We thank you how this church has done that for me and my family, and we offer our confident assurance that this church will stay focused on the gospel, to stay focused on you and only on you, so that your gospel, by faith in Christ, will continue to be proclaimed and will continue to be the lifeblood of this and all functioning churches. In Christ's name we pray, amen.